Welcome to the podcast of First Presbyterian Church of Marietta, where we are committed to changing lives with faith, hope, and love. We're so glad you are here. Our second reading is from the Old Testament book of Genesis, chapter 37, verses 17b to 28. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from a distance, and before he came near to them, they conspired to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we shall say that a wild animal has devoured him, and we shall see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he delivered him out of their hands, saying, let us not take his life. Reuben said, to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but lay no hand on him, that Reuben might rescue him out of their hand and restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the long robe with the sleeves that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty, there was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels carrying gum, balm, and resin on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers agreed. When some Midianite traders passed by, they drew Joseph up, lifting him out of the pit, and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We all know about the shot heard around the world, the shot that began the Revolutionary War, but last Sunday, the Academy Awards delivered to us the slap heard around the world. Comedian Chris Rock was presenting an award when he made a joke about Will Smith's wife. Now, Will Smith always struck me as a very level-headed, reasonable person, but Will Smith didn't find the joke very funny. He found it so unfunny that he climbed up on stage. I think you've all seen the video. He climbed up on stage and just slapped Chris Rock. Now, Will Smith is known for his positive and even wholesome Hollywood image. We watched him grow up as the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. We cheered when he saved the earth in Independence Day. We followed along as he fell in love in Hitch. We held our breath when he defied the odds of a global pandemic in I Am Legend. That one's still too close to home. And when Disney decided to remake the movie Aladdin, there was no one better suited for the role of the genie than Will Smith. And as the genie, Will Smith, was at his best. He was funny and charming, everything we expected him to be. And last Sunday, he was at his worst. That moment was so out of character that the audience, even the show's producer, thought it was a planned bit. The slap overshadowed the rest of the event. And there's a risk that this one bad act could tarnish an otherwise pristine legacy. And it might. We've seen this happen. We've seen how one bad decision can cast a shadow on someone's memory. And today, in our New Testament reading of John chapter 12, we get a good example of this. Now, during Lent, we've been following Jesus on his journey to the cross. Six days before his crucifixion, Jesus and his disciples 
end up in Bethany where they visit Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. We've already met these three friends in John chapter 11 because Lazarus died and Jesus raised him back to life. So of course, Jesus is the guest of honor at the dinner. Uh, and during the dinner, Mary comes over to Jesus. Mary is one of the sisters. She comes to Jesus with a jar of nard, this spicy, musky, heavy uh, ointment or perfume. She cracks open the jar and pours it over Jesus' feet. Now, if this sounds weird to you, that's okay. It is weird. It would be weird for us today. It was weird back then. It was customary to wash your feet after a journey, to kind of, uh, like we scuff off our shoes when we go to someone's house. But it was not customary to pour perfume over your guest's feet, even those with dirty, smelly feet. Now, I'm not saying Jesus had a foot odor problem. <laughs> but if he did, surely a dab would have done it. I mean, have you ever put on too much perfume? Even your favorite perfume, you can make yourself sick with the smell of too much of it. And Mary pours out the whole jar. So the thing that Mary does is disruptive. It may have even made some people lose their appetite for dinner. This jar is worth a full year's wages for a day laborer. For us today, that would be around $45,000. That's a really expensive jar of perfume. It's a lot of money, and it's money that could do a lot of good. Now, if you came to the church tomorrow with $45,000, we have a wish list for that. $45,000 would allow us to fully, thoroughly fund and even expand Club 330 and the food bank outreach. With $45,000, we could finally replace the church boiler. That thing has been on its last leg since I got here three years ago. $45,000 would cover the cost, or half the cost, of a new playground for our youngest children. It wouldn't just be a safe place to play, it would be a tangible sign to this community that young families are welcome here. $45,000 would replace the creepy elevator in the patent building, you know the one, because I don't ride it either. $45,000 would do a lot of good to further the mission and the ministry of this church, to change lives with faith, hope, and love. So if you have $45,000 in your sofa cushions, in a perfume jar at your house, wherever it is, if you have it in a perfume jar and you want to pour it over the body of Christ, consider pouring it out here at First Presbyterian Church of Marietta. All I want to say there is we have a robust wish list for a jar of perfume like Mary has. And the disciples have a robust wish list. It's not a wish list they made up, it's the one Jesus taught them. Because they've been following Jesus for three years around the countryside and over and over, what does Jesus say? He says, you provide for the poor, the orphan, the widow, the stranger, the ones who are most vulnerable. Those are the ones we care for. Judas is the treasurer of the group, and we learn elsewhere in the Gospels that it was Judas's job to disperse that money. He has a front row seat to the kind of generosity that Jesus has been teaching. And so, when Mary pours out the perfume, the person that defends the teachings that Jesus has been giving them is Judas. 
Now, it's dangerous for a pastor to say they're with Judas on anything. But I'm going to say, I'm with Judas on this one. I'm with Judas. What's so bad about being practical? What's so wrong with faithful stewardship? Does Judas have a valid point? I think he might. But then John drops a bombshell on us, something we didn't, uh, maybe didn't know, didn't expect coming. We might not know because no other gospel mentions this little fact. John says that Judas isn't being just practical. Judas is secretly a thief. And this opens a real can of worms. What's a thief doing among the disciples of Jesus? Who invited him to the party? Who invited him? Why would a traitor be in Jesus' inner circle? And who gave that traitor the money back? What kind of incompetent or foolish leader would rely on such a person for God's mission in the world? Who invited him? We all know who, right? Jesus invited him. Jesus invited Judas. We shouldn't forget that. Not only did Jesus invite Judas, Judas said yes to the call. Jesus trusted Judas. Jesus gave Judas a position of leadership. And judging by how surprised the disciples were when Judas did betray Jesus, I think they trusted Judas too. I mean, every disciple had his hang-ups. Peter was prideful. He told Jesus, I would, I would never deny you. And Jesus says, I'll give you three chances to prove that. James and John were hungry for power. They argued over who would be second in command. Matthew was a tax collector. Now, he's the one that we do read about that was a thief. He was skimming money off the top of everything he took in. The disciple Thomas struggles with unbelief. That Judas has a few faults isn't a surprise, but Judas is special. Judas is special. There's no denying that. The Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke give us lists of the 12 disciples. And in every single case, Judas is the last on the list. And he's always given this disclaimer. Judas Iscariot, the one who handed over Jesus. He never lives that one down. Judas is listed last because he's embarrassing. It's not just our gospel writers who are embarrassed by him. We are embarrassed by Judas, personally, communally. Judas is like that eccentric relative or derelict cousin that no one in the family acknowledges. We just pretend they're not part of the family tree. And for several hundred years, the church pretended that Judas wasn't even part of the family. The church theologians had almost nothing to say about Judas. Until the fourth century, Origen, a Christian theologian, he finally tried to tackle the problem of Judas. And he notices this. Origen notices that Judas made good decisions in his life. He answered Jesus' call. He threw himself into the ministry. He took on leadership. At the very end, Judas even repents. But of course, Origen has to admit, as we all do, that Judas made a bad choice. Judas made a bad choice. 
And in the end, Origen isn't able to really say whether Judas is forgiven or not. He repents, then he dies before he comes face to face with Jesus again, in this life at least. Our scripture doesn't end the story. Judas' story ends in a giant question mark. What Origen could say about Judas, though, the church largely adopted, and we said very little about him for years and years after that. But Judas continues to crop up. He continues to cause problems. We can fast forward to the Protestant Reformation, where John Calvin, who was one of the, the kind of the founding fathers of, of the Protestant movement, John Calvin tiptoed around Judas too. Remember, John Calvin was a proponent of predestination. And if you're a part of officer training at this church, you probably talked about this more than you thought you'd have to. Uh, and if you're not, let me tell you, Presbyterians have this as part of our uh, book of confessions. Predestination is this idea that God has already determined who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. John Calvin was really, really uh, a proponent of this idea. And you might assume that Judas goes to hell. I mean, you were probably thinking that, surely, the guy who betrayed Jesus has a special place in hell. But here's the problem. In Matthew chapter 19 and in Luke chapter 18, Jesus promises his 12 disciples they will sit on 12 thrones in the kingdom of heaven. 12 thrones, 12 disciples. Judas is there for that promise. And he receives it too. John Calvin's commentary on these passages skates right over the fact that when Jesus makes the promise, Judas is sitting there. Judas is a problem. We pretend that Judas isn't part of the family, even though he is. We hate the idea that we might be related to Judas, because then we might have to admit that that same DNA is in our bones. And maybe we betray Jesus as well. How do we betray Jesus? We betray Jesus when we ask forgiveness for ourselves, but hold it back from others. We betray Jesus when we exploit the vulnerable and oppress the poor. We betray Jesus when we gatekeep God's grace as if it were ours to parse out. We betray Jesus when we act as though we are our own saviors and have no need of redemption. We betray Jesus when we give ourselves over or lead others to what is unhealthy and unsatisfying and wholesome, when we try to fill the God-sized hole in our hearts with man-made distractions. This is what sin is. It's a betrayal of God's purpose and love. And that's why we have to talk about Judas. Because how we understand Judas matters deeply to how we understand sin and repentance and God's capacity to forgive. I'm not sure that we can answer the question of Judas without a careful study of what comes before, what comes in our Old Testament. And one passage stands out as particularly helpful as we look at the story of Judas in the Gospels. Our second scripture reading today was from Genesis chapter 37. This is the very beginning of the story of Joseph. Joseph is one of the 12 sons of Jacob, Jacob the son of Isaac, Isaac the son of Abraham. Joseph 
is uh, this is the Joseph from the Technicolor Dreamcoat movie, if you've seen that. All right. As the story goes, Joseph receives dreams that are sent by God, and in those dreams, he sees his older brothers bowing down to him. Fine. Okay. But then Joseph tells his older brothers that he had these dreams. And here's a newsflash. Your bigger, stronger, older brothers don't want to hear about this. So the brothers get so annoyed, they don't just want to knock Joseph down a peg, they want to get rid of him once and for all. And one brother, we read about him today, one brother named Judah has an idea. He says, let's sell Joseph for money. So they sell Joseph for 20 pieces of silver. If these details are sounding a little familiar, they should, because the New Testament Gospels tell the story of Jesus' betrayal in such a way as to intentionally echo the story of Joseph. Joseph is betrayed, and the story the brothers tell everyone is that Joseph is dead, and he is as good as dead until God resurrects him. By Genesis chapter 44, God has intervened in Joseph's life. Joseph has gone from languishing in prison to sitting at the right hand of Pharaoh, and that's when the brothers reappear, and one of those brothers is Judah. This Judah isn't the same Judah as the one who betrayed Joseph. The old Judah sold his youngest brother into slavery. This new Judah offers his own life to save the next youngest brother from the same fate. This Judah repents, and Joseph forgives him. If Joseph, a mere mortal, can forgive the brother that betrayed him, then I think Jesus, the Lord and Savior of the world, can forgive the brother who betrayed him. After, Jesus, after Judas sold Jesus to the authorities, he had a change of heart. He repented. He gave the money back, 30 pieces of silver this time. But when he realized he couldn't stop the dominoes from falling, he fell into despair. He took his own life. And this, I think, is the real tragedy of Judah's story. It's not that he betrayed Jesus. It's that he never got to experience Easter morning. Judas never got to learn how wide and how deep God's mercy runs, or that Jesus' death was and is and always will be enough. Enough to redeem not just his brokenness, but all of our brokenness, all the brokenness in creation. Jesus' death was enough to redeem it all and make it new. And this is the good news of Easter. If there is redemption for Judas, then there is redemption for me and for you and for every person who struggles under the weight of sin. If there is room at the table for Judas, in fact, if Judas is invited to the table, there's room at the table for us. And we have to ask the question, who else should we be inviting? Our task as people of faith is to share that good news. It's to seek out those Judases, those that are among us and those who are not yet among us. 
every person who despairs that they are beyond the reach of God's love, we are to reach out to them and point them back to the cross, back to Easter morning, back to the promise that God's mercy is wide enough and the cross is sufficient that our Lord redeems all things. Alleluia. Amen. This podcast is a ministry of First Presbyterian Church of Marietta. Come join us Sundays at 189 Church Street, Marietta, Georgia, or visit us online at fpcmarietta.org.